This is the fourth or fifth week in the Doctrine of God class. We're starting in on attributes. This is kind of attribute number one. And you can tell it's really a class of attributes. At the top of your handout, unity, spirituality, and simplicity. That's what we're covering today. My aim is to do a few minutes on the first two because I think they're probably more intuitive to you. I think you came in here thinking that God is one and that he's a spirit. But we're still going to look at where we see that in the scriptures. We're going to have time for conversation and discussion if there is any. And then we're going to spend most of our time, I hope, on divine simplicity, which is the third point. You'll notice the main idea. Um, I let somebody else define our main idea this this week because there was a really great 500-year-old confession of faith, the Belgic Confession, which hits on all three of these things. I found out Monday. Isn't it crazy? I planned a couple months ago for us to cover this as attribute number one in a series of attributes. I put all three of these together, unity, spirituality, and simplicity. And then I found out Monday that the Belgic Confession from 1561, in its first sentence, has all three of these things. How about that? So you can see it there. They say, we all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single, that's unity, and simple, that's simplicity, spiritual being, there's spirituality, whom we call God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. And if you don't know the Belgian Confession, it's like many of the old confessions of faith from 400 and 500 years ago, where they go on to kind of define the fundamental articles of Christianity, of this religion that many of us here are a part of if we believed in Jesus. And it's interesting to me that they led with this sentence. If I were sitting down to write a statement of faith, I don't think I would have led with these three, these three divine attributes. But they did. They go on to say that God is invisible and incorruptible and omnipresent and all-powerful. And it's all built upon this foundation of unity, spirituality, and simplicity. So I want to look at each of those three words. Point one is single. Point two is spiritual. And point three is simple. You can see it on your handout there. So for each one, we're going to kind of look at where we see it in the scriptures. And there's lots of other places we could have gone. But I just tried to grab a few of the clearest. We're going to talk about what it means. I'm going to see if there's any questions. And I'm going to give you some application for each of these attributes. So what do you do with this? Does that sound good? Okay, point number one. We believe in a single God. That there is one and only one God. Somebody read Deuteronomy 4. Dave's got it. Uh, verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Verse 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth is beneath. There is no other. So there is one being whom we call God. There is only one. The Lord is God and there is no other. Numerically, one single God. This is so foundational to Old Testament religion that it's part of what's called the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. You're probably familiar with it. What they would say, recite every day in their homes, morning and evening. Dave, read that for us. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. How many lords are there? One. How many gods are there? One. Uh, I'm going to say more about this later, but 
uh, we're catechizing our three-year-old, Phoebe. And one of the first five questions, I think, is, Phoebe, are there more gods than one? And she says, no, there is only one God. And that's what we're seeing. There's a single being we call God. There's a single God. She says it really excitedly. There is only one God, which I taught her to do. Because it's exciting that there's only one God. We ought to be excited about such things. You can ask her later and it'll put a smile on your face. There is only one God. Isaiah 44 also has this same teaching. Who's got that? Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare instead of before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come, and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know, I know not any. Is there a God besides me? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. 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 So you might hear people or you might read in the Bible other, about other things called gods, lowercase g. And Isaiah is saying they're not gods. There's only one of those. You remember probably if you were here last week, that I told you that Isaiah 40 through 49-ish is called the trial of the false gods, that Isaiah is speaking about the one true and living God, the God of the Bible, and he's comparing them to all the idols, and he's showing you why the idols are no gods, they are not God, and why God alone is God. And you heard some of that from Isaiah chapter 44, that he's the only one who knows the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. He declares it. He makes it happen. He brings about his purposes and his will. He says, I am the first and the last. Bill just read this. Besides me, there is no God. There's only one of those. Malachi 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? How many gods created us? One. There's only one of those. One creator. Everybody turn to 1 Corinthians 8. I think you get the point. But I want you to see something fascinating, like wonderful and amazing about the New Testament. We just heard a bunch of Old Testament verses that say there's only one God. As you can imagine, the New Testament doesn't change that teaching. There's only one God. That continues to be the case. Only one creator. But what's interesting about the New Testament is that three persons are identified as this one God. Now, we're not supposed to talk about the Trinity today, but we can if people have questions. I have three whole weeks in December on the Trinity, so we will be able to dig a lot more into that. But I did want you to just see this one fascinating detail. Turn to 1 Corinthians 8. You saw, you heard at least, Dave read the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's interesting what Paul does when he takes that that phrase that would have been so familiar to any Old Testament Israelite, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Paul takes that phrase in 1 Corinthians 8, look at verse 4, and somebody, whoever said they would read that, read that. Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one, 
For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us... Pause right there. So Paul just said what I just said. Praise the Lord. That's a good thing. Paul's saying, you might hear about other things called gods, and I'm just telling you they're not gods. There's only one of those. Now keep going. Listen to what he does with the Shema. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all are, from whom all are, whoops, sorry, for whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. How many gods? One. How many lords? One. Paul intrudes into the Shema, the Father and the Son. Fascinating. So, hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Paul says, for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. And in case you're worried that Paul is now saying there are two gods, and one of them is lesser, that can't all be what he's saying, because he's talking about creation. And he's putting Jesus on the other side. He's, he's on the side of the one who creates everything. <laughs> Remember I drew that wonderful, simple, helpful diagram last week and week one. The creator-creature distinction, foundational to Christian theology, that there's God and everything else. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 is putting Jesus on this side. He's the one through whom all things exist. If all things exist through him, he can't be one who comes into existence or is created. You see the same thing all over Scripture. John 1, verse 3, that that by him all things were created. Again, he's put on the other side of the creator-creature distinction. He's the creator. 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You get the point. James 2. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The oneness of God is something even demons understand. It's that basic. Demons are not confused about how many gods there are. There's one of them. So what do you do with the fact that there's one single God? Uh, I'm going to give you three points of application. Number one, because God is one, we must worship only him. Because God is one, we must worship only him. And that means we flee from all idolatry. (coughs) Any worship of other gods or any wrong worship of the one true God, we should avoid and flee from. This is how John ends 1 John 5, verse 21. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He ends with it, I think, because it's so basic. Because God is one, we must worship only him. Number two. Because God is one, we as his people must pursue and fight for unity. It's interesting, Jesus, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, he says in verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one, even as you and I, Father, are one. Jesus wants the oneness that he has with the Father to characterize his people, the church. Because God is one, we ought to fight for unity. And then number three, because God is one, we must single-mindedly focus our thoughts and lives on him. Because God is one, we must single-mindedly focus our thoughts and lives on him. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. It's that kind of single-minded focus upon God. Because there's one God that ought to characterize us. Again, we go quickly through those because I think it's probably intuitive to you. The Bible teaches that there's only one being called God, rightly called God. Any questions about that or comments you think would be edifying for other people here? Before we move on to spirituality, Brad? What was the reference for that, uh, the second point of application? John 17, 23. Thanks. Yep. Any other questions, Nick? Quick comment. Um, I just heard from a student at Georgetown that a professor was teaching in his class that nowhere in the Bible that it, it says explicitly that there's only one God. Uh, I tried and to give I, you I a think couple. You just laid out. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and I will say, I appreciate you saying that, Nick. I will say, there's some things that I think are. Uh, I don't mean this in any kind of rude way. I really don't. But there's some things that I think are so obvious that you might be tempted to just skip over them as if, oh, everybody knows that. That's not the case. Especially in academic circles, people make a living by questioning things that are clear and obvious and true. And so it is helpful for us, even if you came in here thinking, of course I know there's only one God. It's good to know from the Bible where that's true and to have a couple of places and to be able to go to places where people aren't expecting. You know, if you talk to, um, just as an example, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they expect you to go to John 1.1 and try to argue that Jesus is God. If you go to John 1.3, it really discombobulates them. Or John 8.5, right? Because they've been trained to respond to John 1.1. They haven't been trained to respond to John 1.3 or John 8.58, right? So it's like we just want to be kind of adding to our Rolodex of Bible verses for every doctrine to be able to defend, hey, this is what God says, right? Appreciate you pointing that out. Any other questions on the single God? Someone's wondering, what about the Trinity, Ben? And I'm like, I really want to talk about that, but we don't have time. So come back in December. So if Jesus as the Son is put on the side of the Creator, yep. then why is he referred to as the Son of God, the definition of Son, so he was born to his Yep. Great, great, great question. Um, So a couple of things. One, on the podcast, there are two lessons on the Trinity in Foundations. If you go to Delray Baptist Audio, where I give a much fuller answer to this question, what I'm going to say here is just brief for the sake of time. So we call Jesus the Son because he's the Son of the Father. That doesn't make him less God. It speaks about the way in which he is God. So there is only one God. But the being of God is shared fully and exhaustively by three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If, you were, if you've heard me do this before, you know I do this in seven statements. There's only, one and only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Those are all true. You can find one Bible, Bible verse for every single one of those statements. The only way to put them all together is the doctrine of the Trinity. There is no other solution. So we use the language of son to speak about the way in which the son is God. He's God from the father. The father is God from no one. This is a little bit mind bending because of the way we use the language son in our own lives. If I had a son, when we talk about my son, we'd use that language because he came into existence. He's biologically my offspring. 
Not so with Jesus. And the earliest Christians understood this. In the fourth century, you have them saying that he's begotten, not made. So there's a sense in which he's from the Father, but it's not the sense in which he comes into existence as if he didn't exist. So I say all that to say, last week when I talked about analogy, that's the way we use the word son. It's an analogy. So it's both like what we speak about when we speak about our creaturely sons and unlike. That's a short, insufficient answer, but thank you for the question. Let's move on for the sake of time. Number two, so we just covered one, we believe in a single God. Number two, we believe in a spiritual God. And you'll notice Bill's here, so I'll say this. My outline is cute and maybe just a little bit unhelpful as a result. And I'm sorry for that. So it probably would be better to say that God is a spirit, which is what Jesus says. In John chapter 4, verse 24, whoever's got that, read that. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that God is a spirit? Or when we speak about the spirituality of God, or the spiritual nature of God, the first thing we're denying is that God doesn't have a body. This is not a parenting class, but if you teach your kids theology, you will learn a lot as well. And one really great way to teach your kids theology is catechisms. They're just short question and answer uh, theology packed in for little minds, right? So another one of Phoebe's catechism questions, what is God? And she says, God is a spirit and he does not have a body like men. And that's right. That's what I think Jesus teaches in John chapter four, verse 24, that God doesn't have a body. He's immaterial. He's not made up of matter. So unlike my relationship with Brendan, where I can hug him, like I can touch him and see him and hear him, not so with God. He doesn't have a body like men. He's a spirit. So he's immaterial. He's invisible. He can't be seen, which we looked at in week one. He's incorporeal, which is just a fancy way of saying he doesn't have a body. He's got no corpus. It's from the Latin. Lots of other places where the scripture says this. 1 Timothy 1 is one of them. I think Laura's got that. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Interesting there because it ties the single God to the spiritual God. The king of ages... The only God is invisible. Chapter 6, verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And there it is. Now, if you're not looking at it, I, she read a lot of verses, and that's because verse 15 and 16, which are the key verses, start in the middle of a sentence. And I just didn't want to do that to you. But listen to this again. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, 
verse 16, 1 Timothy 6. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. That means you can't approach it. Unapproachable. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. He's invisible. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We believe in a spiritual God. A God who's invisible, immaterial, without a body. Colossians 1, verse 15, which is talking about Jesus, but listen to what it says about who Jesus is as it relates to God. There's some more Jesus is the creator language. He made everything, which means he's not a thing that's made. More on that later. Notice also, he's the image of what? Does anybody know Colossians 1.15 well enough? He's the image of what? The invisible, God. the invisible God. God is not visible. You can't see him. Yeah, we could say more on that. John 1.18, last one. John 1.18, I don't know who has that. I'm happy to do it. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, I just want to say on John 1.18, similar with John 17.3, which says, and this is eternal life. That they, this is Jesus speaking. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Some people will use John 17, 3 and say, see, the Father is the only true God, i.e. Jesus is not God. That's a simplistic, wrong way of reading that verse. Which you can tell from John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, which is very clearly the Son, he has made him known. So the Bible has this way of saying the Son is the only God. The Father is the only God. What does that mean? They're both identified as God. How do you put that together? Again, Trinity, I think, is the only way. So we're not looking for the Bible to tell us there's two gods, because the Bible denies that. There's a single God, right? If you want to say that the Son is God, a good way of saying that is the Son is the only God. There's only one. It's a little mind-bending, but I think a stronger affirmation of the deity of Jesus when you see that that way. But notice what uh, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, okay, because you can't see him. He's invisible. He's a spirit. Now, of course, we will one day see God. For those of us who are in Christ, we'll see God face to face. And I think we'll see the Lord Jesus, who has a human body, who's become a man, Right? And Jesus would say, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. So we believe in a spiritual God. He does not have a body like men. He's a spirit. What do you do with that? Well, because God... Actually, let me pause there. Are there any questions? Any questions about that, Laura? Uh, mine's sort of two-part. You might have just answered one. I thought one of them, I didn't turn to each one. I thought one of them said, no one has ever seen God or will ever see God. 1 Timothy 6 says... No one has ever seen God or can see God. Or can't 
So then how does that jive with we will see God one day in eternity? And also how does that jive with like Isaiah and John who are like, I saw the Lord. See the, you know what I mean? Like, yep. Great question. Yep, great question. So she's, she's asking about 1 Timothy 6, 16. No one has ever seen God or can see God. I would say the two passages are speaking about God in different respects. I've tried not to use this word so as to be understandable. But when we're speaking about God's being, we're speaking about his essence. No one can ever see the essence of God. You can see manifestations of that essence. The pillar of fire and smoke. The glowing face of Moses after he's met with God face, face to face, it says, on the mountain. The incarnate son, of course you can see. He's taken on a human body, so now he can be seen. Right? So there's two senses in which we're saying it. Remember how last week when I talked about analogy, and we talked specifically about anthropomorphism, when God is spoken of like he's a creature or like he's a human, we need to be able to affirm and deny the analogy. It's both, but in different senses. It's not a contradiction because we're not saying it's true and false. We're saying in some aspects it's true, and in other aspects it's false. And we want to be able to hold on to both. It might feel like a tension. That's just because we're creatures and we can't fit the infinite God into our mind, which is where we started in week one of this class. So you want to be able to affirm and deny creaturely images of God, in case you weren't here. The illustration I gave last week was God is a shepherd. Of course that's true in the sense that he cares for us and he's better than any shepherd because he never loses sight of his sheep. He always cares for every single detail. He has the hairs on your head numbered. He's numbered your very days. He knows when you'll draw your last breath. We also ask Phoebe, can you see God? And she says, no, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. And that's true. He's a good shepherd. He's also not like a shepherd because he never sleeps or gets tired. That's what makes him the best shepherd, right? That just as an example of an analogy that the Bible uses. We looked at it in week one. That God is a shepherd who tends his flock. Of course, that's true. And it's also false. The way in which the Bible is affirming it is the true way. We just need to understand that the analogy doesn't fit every single piece, Right? So that, I would do the same thing with the seeing God language. There's a sense in which you're not going to see the invisible, immaterial essence of God. You can't. You can only see visible, material things. But you can see an incarnate God, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the one who's wrapped himself in flesh, who's become like us in every way, yet without sin. And if you see him, you see the Father, the one who can't be seen. You see Great question. Again, we're going to move on for the sake of time. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, So what was going on in Genesis 3? So after the fall, and then in verse uh, 3-8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day as man and his wife hid. So how do we reconcile that? I mean, what do we see as we talked about some of this humanly narrative to describe the spiritual God. Yeah, it's a great question. So there's a sense in which we want to say, what do you mean, John? They saw God in Genesis 3. Or we might say, what do you mean, Paul? They heard God, right? 
And I would just say, again, it's, it's what I just said in answer to Laura's question. There's a sense in which yes and no. The sense in which yes is the one you're asking about, so that's what I'll speak to. Right? In terms of his immaterial essence, you cannot see God. It's not possible. You can only see visible material things. In terms of his effects, his works, his manifestations of himself, when he shows up in power and wraps himself in creaturely metaphor, he makes himself visible. We're not seeing everything there is to see when we talk about God. We are seeing this expression of him relating to creatures. If that's mind-bending to you, again, it's because we're talking about God. I don't claim to understand every single aspect. But I do want to try and hold in harmony the two, the two realities. The affirmation that no one's seen God in John and Paul or can see God. And the affirmation that some people are spoken of as seeing God. Moses, it even says, we looked at this in Exodus 33 in week one uh, of this class, that it says he spoke to him face to face. Which is marvelous. I mean, that's fascinating. How does that work? How do you speak face to face with an immaterial being? I don't know. I know it's true. I know that the language and metaphor is limited. And we're just trying to understand, kind of fence in the mystery. Which doesn't mean explain it. It just means rightly locate it. Like identify. Where is this mysterious? I think some people, if you listen to them carefully, start with mystery and act as if we can't know anything about God. That's not what I'm doing, right? I just want to appropriately locate the mystery. We are not going to understand in the full sense. We are not going to comprehend who God is or what God is in the full sense. And yet he's made himself known. That's why we started with incomprehensibility in in week one of this class. Though we can never comprehend God, he has made himself known to us. He's revealed himself in creaturely language. He's accommodated himself to our capacity to understand. He's made himself knowable and known. And the way you do that is you speak about God as if he's one of us. That's the only way we can understand. So then when we read a story about God, speaking about God like he's one of us, we say he's not like one of us because he also tells us that. And we try to put the pieces together. Does that make sense? I'm not, I'm not sure it does make sense. No, I think it does make sense. I think it's true. I think we're just at the limits of our own existence. I mean, we're butting up against infinity. Bryson? Yeah, I think, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but this might be helpful as well, but I think I've been listening to you talk. It's also helpful to remember that we're trying to use the language that you said a minute ago to describe the infinite God. Exactly. And there are, not to say that God's word is not sufficient and perfect, but there are limitations to how we can speak. Of course. Yeah, and I don't think it has anything to do with sufficiency and perfection of God's word, which of course we all want to affirm. It has to do with how God's word reveals God to us as creatures. We can't understand God the way God understands God. But the good news is that he's revealed himself to us in a way that we can understand, right? With creaturely language. That's why he says he meets with people face to face. Because that's how we meet with people. That's how we in our, our experience understand meeting with someone and talking with them and hearing them. Right? Camp? So then I think you might have already been answered this. I just want to make sure you, just because uh, Revelation 22 says that we will see him face to face. So would you just answer that the same way as when it says we will see his face? I would say that's seeing Jesus. Okay. 
I think the, the vision of God is the vision of Christ. Jesus says, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. Does that mean we've seen his immaterial, invisible essence? No, you can't. So to clarify, you would yeah. say in Revelation 22, not seeing the Father's face. Not seeing the Father's face, we're seeing the Son's face. What's, yeah, I'm not trying to be difficult. What I think oh, is funny know. is if Jesus were asked the question, you guys know how Jesus gets questions, and you're like, are you answering the question? <laughs> but I think it's because it's really difficult to explain. Um, Jesus would say, you are seeing the Father. That's what he said to the Pharisees, right? If you've seen me, you've seen him, right? That's the mystery that we're trying to hold on to, grab on to. So when you say you're not seeing the Father's face, I think Jesus would say you are seeing the Father's face in as much as the Father's face can be seen, which is in the Son, who's become a man. Praise God. Praise God indeed. All right, we got to move on. I'm sorry. I'm happy to talk more after class about this, though, for sure. We believe in a single God. We believe in a spiritual God. Oh, I didn't tell you. Um, what do you do with that? Uh, the spirituality of God. I think because God is a spirit, we must purify our prayer and worship. Because God is a spirit, we must purify our prayer and worship. You remember when Jesus says that God is spirit, he says that the true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. I trust you know what it means to worship God in truth, according to what he's revealed in the truth, which is his word. But what does it mean to worship him in spirit? I'm sure it's a couple of things, but it's at least this. One, sincerely, from the heart. Two, singularly, you worship only him. There is numerically one God, one being who you worship, and you only worship him. And three, not unspiritually. If you're supposed to worship in spirit, then don't worship unspiritually, by which I mean fleshly or carnally. And that's why I'm using the language of purify. Purify your prayer and your worship from sin, from wrong ways of thinking about and speaking about God. Because God is a spirit, we must purify our prayer and worship of him. All right, we got we to gotta move on. Number three, we believe in a simple God. We believe in a simple God. Everybody turn to James 1. James 1. Sounds like we're there. James 1, 17. Um, before I read some of these verses, I do want to tell you what I mean by simple. Again, I said this at the beginning. I spoke to several folks in our church this week who said, I've never heard of divine simplicity. What is that? And so I think it might be helpful for me to just say what I mean by that before we read it in the Bible. Um, I'll tell you, spoiler alert, you're not going to find a Bible verse that says God is simple. Okay? Just like you're not going to find a Bible verse that says God is Trinity. You need to put lots of Bible verses together to arrive at the doctrine that God is simple. By which I mean not that he's slow or stupid. I don't mean simple in that sense. I don't mean simple in the sense that he's easy to understand. Hopefully that part's obvious at this point. (laughs) It's not an insult, which is the way we use the language of simple in kind of modern parlance. Like we say, oh, he's really simple. That's an insult. It's actually some, it's a way of speaking about God that glorifies him. 
Because we deny that God is composed of parts. He's simple, which means he's not compound or composite. But positively, it means that God is his attributes. God is his attributes. Positively, when we say God is simple, we're saying that he's divine fullness. Everything that it means to be God, he is. There is no distance or separation between God and his attributes. When we speak about God's wisdom, we're just speaking about God. That's what the doctrine of divine simplicity is. When we say that God is simple, we're saying that he's not composed of parts and that he is his attributes. There's no separation or distance between them. So um, I'll say more about that. Let's hear a couple of Bible verses that I think show this or give hints at this. And then when you put them all together, we'll see if we can get there. Number one, James 1, 17. I'll read it. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no variation or shadow due to change in God. He is immutable, which means he's not mutable. He doesn't mutate or change. Okay. There is no change in God. If you wanted to write down on your handout immutability, That's kind of the first plank in the house that's going to be this doctrine. Immutability. God does not change. Not in his character, not in his nature, not in his will. Now we're going to look at immutability specifically in a couple of weeks in this class. But just to preview that right now, we're going to need immutability as the first plank in our house that's going to be simplicity. God does not change. Flip over to Romans 11. Romans 11. This will be kind of your key verse for simplicity if you want to circle it on your handout. As you're turning there, Romans 11 verse 35 The immutability of God is a plank in the foundation because if God had parts, he could change. If he doesn't have parts, he can't. Stick with me. Look at Romans 11, verse 35. Uh, I'll start in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Verse 35, listen. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? What's the answer? No one. No one. It's a rhetorical question. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So in verse 35, no one gives to God... He gives to everyone. Verse 36, everything that is, is from him and through him and to him. That can't be the case if God is not simple. There would be parts of God 
that are not from him and through him and to him. There would be parts that are given to him that he receives. What is a part? A part is anything that is less than the whole and essential to the thing. If God's wisdom were, and I'm just using wisdom as an example, if God's wisdom were a part of God, as opposed to being identical with God, he could increase in it and decrease in it. It could be taken away from him. Would he cease to be God? There would be something given to him. There would be something that's not from him and through him and to him. If he were composed of parts. Now, I said this last week, but I want to say it again. We generally think in our experience that more parts equals more power. We generally think if you put together lots of parts, you'll get more power. For example, my daughter Phoebe, who's right there in the back, has a little pink car that has like five parts on it. It's got the handle that you push. It's got the seat that she sits in. It's got a little uh, hood flap that you can lift up and put stuff in. And you're talking like four or five parts to this little pink car that I push her in. Okay. Well, my wife's car, a Toyota Highlander, 2011, has, I don't know, probably tens of thousands more parts. That's just a guess. And obviously, Anna's car is way more powerful than Phoebe's car. Because generally, more parts equals more power. Not so with God. See, what's the defect of something being composed of parts is that you can take one of those parts away and the whole thing falls apart. It stops being a car that gets you from point A to point B. If you can take a part out, you actually lose power. Also, part of being composed of parts is being composed of parts. Someone has to put you together. So if something other than God composes God, then God depends on something that's not God to be God, which of course would be a problem. We want God rather to be independent, not dependent on anyone. Who has given to him that he might repay? No one. He's rather assay of himself, which is the doctrine of aseity, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks in this class. He's independent. He depends on no one. Unlike us, we're imminently dependent. I mean, I depend on so many people to survive. Not so with God. He's independent. So if divine simplicity negatively is denying parts to God, he's not composed of parts, not compound, not composite. It's positively, I already said this, but I'm just restating. I already said it's positively he is his attributes. Let's, let's try to see that. We're going to look at three. Mark chapter 10. You can just listen to it if you want to, or you can turn there. Mark chapter 10. Verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You could look at the Matthew account of this in chapter 19, where he also says there's only one God and he's good. You put them together, you get that there's a single God and that he's simple. How do you get simple from this? It's because no one is good but God. I said this last week, just to restate. I have good sometimes. If you ask my wife, she'll tell me 
Not a lot. <laughs> but, uh, but I do have good sometimes. I do good things. I am not identical with my goodness. Because I can do bad things sometimes. I cannot do good. Not so with God. God is good. He doesn't just have goodness. As if it could be taken away. Or decreased. Or increased. God is good. We see the same thing in 1 John about God being light. 1 John 5. 1 John 1, 5. So God is good. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. It's not just that God has light, but that he is light. He is identical to his attributes. He doesn't just have goodness or have light. He is goodness and is light. Same thing in 1 John 4, 8 with love. Same thing in 1 John 4, 8 with love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's not just that he has love. It's not just that he does love. He's loving, but he is love itself. Just like goodness and light, so with love. What does this mean? Well, one thing it means is that there's no attributes that are more fundamental to who God is. It's not the case that God just has holiness, but he is love. You can imagine, if you're just thinking about it for a second, someone might say that, very well intended, and end up doing really devastating things. If God just has holiness, but he is love, we can justify all sorts of ways we want to behave. Because love is more foundational to God. Don't you want to be loving? You see? Not so with God. God is holy, 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 and he is love. There's no attribute which, more, which is more basic to him. I said this before too, but again, in one sense, we could say that there's really only one divine attribute. Godness. What does it mean to be God? That's what God is. So God's wisdom just is God under the consideration of that attribute. God's love is just God. This is why last week when we talked about analogy and how we want to use the language and the idea of like as opposed to same and different. Remember that? Analogy goes all the way down when you're talking about God. It's not just like a metaphor or an illustration. It applies even to something like love. Why? Because of the same thing I said about goodness. I am not goodness. I have goodness. I am not love. I have love. God is love. That's what it means for God to be God. He's identical to his attributes. This is a very old way of speaking and thinking. It's very consistent in, in the Christian tradition and theology. Augustine said the nature of God is simple and immutable and undisturbed, nor is he himself one thing and what he is and has another thing. He is his attributes. Another church father said God being light is not pieced together from things that are darkness. It's not like a Lego tower. 
where you just build up attribute upon attribute upon attribute and you get God. We don't add up love and holiness and justice and get God. One theologian said, a denial of this doctrine of divine simplicity is tantamount to atheism. So I want to just ask you, how could he say that? Why do you think he said that? A denial of divine simplicity is tantamount to atheism. Any ideas? Well, God is hardly God if it would be possible for him to lose an aspect of himself mm-hmm. or be taken apart in such a way. Agreed. Totally. He's also not God if he's put together by somebody else. Any other ideas about why denying simplicity would be tantamount to atheism? Zach? If God is made up of parts, then isn't he more like just a really big creature rather than the creator? Because either someone had to put him together or there is nothing that puts anyone together. We all just are. Yeah, I think, if you, I think the way he says it is, if you deny something so fundamental to who God is, it's as if you deny God exists. God exists necessarily a certain way. If you deny the way that God exists, you deny that God exists. That's what he's doing there. Both of those answers, I think, are great. Now, maybe you've not heard this language before, simplicity. Maybe you're like one of the folks I talked to this week. You're like, I've never heard this before. I don't know what that is. I've been a Christian my whole life. I would just say the lingo might be new to you, but the substance probably isn't. If you believe that God does not depend on what is not God to be God or to do what he does, you believe in divine simplicity. You just maybe didn't call it that. If you believe that God is independent of everything other than himself, if you believe that he's unchanging, you believe that he's simple, whether you knew it that way or not, whether you called it that thing or not. In some of this whole lesson, we could say there's only one God. There's only one way to be God. And everything about this one God is absolutely essential to being this one God. That was Kevin DeYoung's summary. There's only one God. There's only one way to be God. And everything about this one God is absolutely essential to being God. That's what we mean to affirm. That's what the Belgic Confession affirms when it says we all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. We're out of time, so let me tell you, what do you do with God's simplicity? Two points of application. Number one, because God is simple, we ought to worship him undividedly and undistractedly. Because God is simple, we ought to worship him undividedly and undistractedly, which will be especially relevant as we're about to go to church. That our affections, our thoughts, our actions ought not be divided. They ought not be double-minded. We should actually be single-minded on God and everything else in relation to him. We ought not be distracted by things which would take our affections or our thoughts away from God or lower them of God. And then number two, because God is simple, we ought to seek contentment and turn from corruption. 
Because God is simple, we ought to seek contentment and turn from corruption. Why do I say that? God's simplicity is the ground of God's incorruptibility. God's simplicity, the fact that he's not composed of parts, the fact that he doesn't change, is the reason he never sins. And he never can sin, and he never will sin. That ought to affect us in that we, by God's grace, empowered by his spirit who lives in us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, ought to seek contentment in whatever place he's put us in. We ought to turn from corruption and aspire for the kind of incorruptibility that's fitting for saints, for those who follow and know God. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. If we know God, we ought to, by faith, try to become more like him. As we hear his word and do what it says, by his grace, through faith, in his son. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of who you are. That there is one and only one God. That you are a spirit who does not have a body and that you're not composed of parts, that you don't depend on anyone outside yourself to be who you are. Would you cause this truth to mark us? Help us to see it in the scriptures and help us to have confidence in who you are, that you're trustworthy and unchanging, even incorruptible, that we can rely on you and depend on you because you depend on no one. Help us, Lord, as we go into corporate worship this morning to worship you in an undivided and undistracted way. Would you give us grace in all these things? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.